The Conversation Collective. You're listening to The Conversation Collective. The podcast shifting perspectives on young women's well-being. Proudly created by young women and brought to you by the Shift Foundation. Hi, my name is Greer. Hello, I'm Tiki. Me and Greer both work for the Shift Foundation here in Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand. And we've been working with a group of six incredible young women who have created and recorded this podcast. The young women working behind the scenes are Kate, Eleanor, Yolena, Celinda, Caitlin and Polly. And throughout this series, each one of them will be sharing some amazing conversations with you. The Conversation Collective team will be talking to inspiring guests from around the world, all of whom have previously represented their country at Empower Women Through Sport, an initiative that is part of the Global Sports Mentoring Programme, over in the United States. These women will tell us their amazing stories, speak about the work they're doing to empower women and girls and share their insights of the impact of COVID-19 where they live. So if you're just joining us and you haven't listened to the first series of The Conversation Collective, make sure to go back and check it out. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or on our website, www.shiftnz.org forward slash podcast where you will also find accessible transcripts of every episode. All right, Team Agria, where can our listeners find us on social media? Well, to stay up to date with all things Convo Co, you can follow us at the underscore conversation underscore collective on Instagram. Find out more about the Shift Foundation on our website, shiftnz.org, and on Instagram at shiftfoundationnz. Sweet ads, and now on to the episode. Welcome to all our listeners out there, new and old. We are very excited to be back and bringing you the first episode of this podcast series. As you know, six young women have been working hard behind the scenes for the last few months to bring you this podcast. And today it's my job and my pleasure to introduce you to your first podcast host. Eleanor is 18 years old and in her spare time, she'll most likely be found trail running around the beautiful hills of Upper Hutt, just outside Wellington, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Hello, Eleanor. Hi, Chiki. Welcome to your podcast episode. How excited are you to be finally recording this? Super excited. I'm just like really nervous, but you know what? We're here, we're doing it. It's going to be great. Brilliant. Okay, let's get stuck into it. Over to you, Eleanor. Thanks, Chiki. Welcome back to the Conversation Collective Season 2. Today we're kicking it off with a Kiwi. I am chatting with Chanel Barrett today on her experiences as a triathlete turned New Plymouth ITU World Cup director, especially on how accessibility in her corner of the sporting world is for women and her own experiences encouraging women into volunteering in sports. In 2015, Chanel was picked to be a part of the Global Sport Mentoring Program in Los Angeles to learn and form a path to a more multicultural environment of diversity and inclusivity in sport that she's involved with. Kia ora Chanel. Hello, how are you? Hi, great, thanks. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Okay, so we're just going to kickstart right into it. What's the most empowering piece of advice you have been given or could give? I guess I was lucky to be brought up 
in an environment with um, my mum, who taught us from a very, very young age the power of positive thinking. So right from when I was probably about seven or eight years old, we were introduced to um, people like John Keogh, um, Louise Hay, who are all about positive thinking. So my mum brought us up at a very young age learning about that. So I was lucky enough to go right through my sporting career and also my career now as a um, very positive thinker. And those, those sort of things that I learned from that is probably one of the biggest things that I've learned and try and install in people these days is the power of positive thinking. I also had an uncle who was based in Japan and I used to, he often helped me out financially as I was an athlete um, struggling at the time. And he would often help me out with my travel and part of the deal was that I had to stop in Japan on my way through um, to stay with him for two weeks. It was a really hard deal. Uh, but uh, what he taught me, and he was the maintenance director for Northwest Airlines, um, so very, very high position up in Northwest Airlines. He taught me that it didn't matter where you lived, who you were, whatever you could do, you could do if you really put your mind to it. So I never, he said there was never any barriers. Um, don't put any barriers in your life. Uh, don't let there be barriers in your life. So I've gone through life with a philosophy of looking at something, looking at a challenge and going, you know what, why can't I do that? Can't be that hard. So it's always been my philosophy. Uh, one other thing I had as an athlete, and I still have it stuck to the inside of my wardrobe door, is the picture of the, um, oh, it's it's like a crane, hold, and the frog, it's got a frog in its mouth and the frog's around the neck and they're saying never, ever, ever give up. And that has definitely been my mantra through my entire life is never, ever give up on those dreams that you've got. I love that mantra. Just going back to that positive thinking thing, how do you do that practically? Like, do you have a set of steps or kind of a mantra for positive thinking that you tend to go towards? When I was competing, I did a lot of visualization. So one of the books, um, Mind Power of John Keogh was probably my favorite book. And I read that a lot. And a lot of that was around visualization. So I spent a lot of time with visualization around that and, and the power of what that visualization meant. I remember sitting uh, in the, before all of my races, um, you always need to go to the bathroom. You always need to go for the nervous bathroom break. And I remember always sitting in the toilet, visualizing what my race was going to be like and sitting there and going, visualizing myself going across that finish line winning. I used to go to bed at night and that was what I visualized. It was just all consuming um, in terms of that visualization, in terms of what um, I you know, wanted to do. The positive thinking side, I guess, probably the other side, the other one around John Keogh was, um, I don't know if you've listened to his stories, but... He talks about your, I'll be happy when, and it's, it's a really interesting concept around, I'll be happy when I get this job. I'll be happy when I achieve this goal. Instead of being in the moment and going, well, actually, I can be happy right now. Um, all these other things can come and it can add to my happiness, but being happy right now was really about the truth of happiness. So that's another um, sort of interesting thing that I really live by now is being really grateful for what I've got, what I've had, the experiences that I've had good and bad, and that has allowed me to, you know, continue to achieve in the way that I have. Such an important part of accessibility that I hadn't thought of up until now is the accessibility of your mind and the power of it. So do you use vis visualisation now as kind of a director? Probably not as much as I did when I was an athlete, um, but I certainly... 
I guess I suppose it's kind of similar. So I obviously in event directing now, I'm thinking about my races, thinking about what I want them to look like, uh, you know, what my athletes want to feel when they turn up and obviously trying to create the perfect race. I have a really, I'm a perfectionist at heart, which is good and bad. Uh, so I guess I often think about my races and what I want to see them look like, uh, what people are going to feel when they come on site. So all of those things are really, really important um, in what I do in my, my day-to-day life now. I guess I just kind of transitioned into my second question kind of then is that tell us about how your perspective on your races and I guess the accessibility of competitive sports changed when you moved from being an athlete to a director. Um, did it did it shift how you viewed the accessibility in terms of how do people get there, how do people approach the race, both I guess mindset and physically and who can do it? Uh, I guess transitioning from an athlete to an event director was a big, big change in my life. Uh, So obviously I went from an elite level athlete uh, aiming for the Olympic Games for Athens Olympics in 2004 and then not being able to compete. So going through that really, and I had a couple of years where it was really, really dark time. It was really tough for me because I'd gone from an all-consuming athlete and this is everything what my life is about and my heart and soul my family's life was about it not that they pushed me into what I wanted to do but they were absolutely supportive there to going oh wow who am I now so that was probably a big shift for me mentally and personally Um, so not really about the accessibility of, of what it was to become event director and I guess in my mind what shifted for me was I went from trying to figure out who I was if I wasn't Chanel the triathlete who was going to go to the Olympic Games to going I am still a person I'm not necessarily just a triathlete so there was a big shift around that and then moving into um, becoming an event director probably with my understand my mantra of saying there are no barriers in my life has been a really good one for me to say there are no barriers and the way I got into event directing was actually when I was competing so I wanted to give back to the sport I wanted to give something back to kids I absolutely loved working with kids and encouraging them to get into sport because I knew how powerful sport was so as a 20 year old I actually ran the Weetbix triathlon series here in here in Taupo and that was with 1500 kids so I remember as a 20 year old thinking oh my god I'm babysitting 1500 children there's a lot of kids Um, And I did that for two years. And that sort of, I guess, sparked my passion of one, wanting to work with kids and also fostering and mentoring and and teaching them what they could do to, um, oh, I actually quite enjoy working in the sport as well and obviously making that a bit of a career. So I started out that, you know, obviously that career path sort of in my sporting area. So I was a little bit lucky in terms of being already immersed in the sport and then wanting to stay involved in the sport. And with obviously my elite uh, triathlon career coming to an abrupt end and then still not still not achieving my ultimate goal of going to the Olympic Games, I obviously stayed within the sport and then worked towards a, a technical official and then ending up at the London Olympic Games, which was my ultimate goal of making it to the Olympic Games. Do you think that's part of accessibility? Is that if you, if you really want to do it, you do it early? Or do you think it's just, type of thing in sport where you can pick it up at any age and keep going with it um I 
Yeah, I think there's there's a fine line between being too young and obviously, depending on what sport you have chosen, obviously being at the peak of your career and what age that is, I do see um, children that are given a lot of opportunities from parents, but then I also see the parents that are trying to live their dreams with their children, um, which I see, you know, when I've come through schooling, you see the kids that are with you and they're competing with you and that they're at the same level as you. And then they completely drop off when they've got the flexibility to do whatever they want. So there's a real fine line between um, parenting and and what you can encourage your children to do, and also um, you know over, trying to get them to overachieve at a too younger age that they they just get sick of it and want to move on to something else. I was lucky with my parents where it was all about support. They were never forcing us to do something. Yes, they encouraged us to be dedicated. They encouraged us to not give up. But if I said, this is no longer for me, then that was fine as long as I had something else I was going to move on to. So it was never about you must stay in this sport and you must do this, you must compete here, you must compete there. And it was about me and me making those choices myself. At school, I, when I was only 14 years of age, I said to my mum that the swimming club in Taupo was not good enough for my training. This is what I decided as a 14 year old. So I wanted to train in Rotorua for my swimming. So this meant that I needed to get up at 3.30 in the morning and my mum would drive me to Rotorua and I would do my swimming session with the squad there for two hours and then we would drive home and then I would go to school. So that was a decision that I made. My mum, God bless her, because she was the one that drove me over and drove me back and, and listened to all these crazy ideas that I had. But it was my job to set the alarm. It was my job to wake mum up because it was me that wanted to go. So if I decided not to set my alarm and I decided to sleep through, well, that was my choice. It was never mum getting me up. It was about me. So it was, it was very much responsibility on myself for the dreams that I wanted to do, um, but obviously with the real strong support from my family. Do you think that helped, you, you being the driving force? Did it instill a sense of work ethic? Absolutely, yeah. And it definitely installed a huge sense of work ethic and it meant that I owned it. So the harder I worked, the more I'd achieve. The goals were mine, the the achievements were mine. They were there for me to earn and keep. Um, and I think that made it more special. I do know at school, um, my friends thought I was mad. Um, <laughs> no one wanted to sit, me, sit next to me at school because I stunk of chlorine from the, uh, from the swimming pools every day. <laughs> but, um, you know, turning up at... At, you know at school at 8:30 in the morning and I've already been over to Rotorua and swam for two hours and come home and they just couldn't believe that I was doing that even on even when I had my exams I was still getting up early and going swimming and coming home and still doing my exams and they're like oh how are you staying awake but I guess it just invigorated me and and gave me that challenge and and whatever I wanted to do I just set my mind to it and, and went out there and did it so it's just for me it's like I don't know that, that sense of uh, that kind of grit and determination to get in there and, and you know achieve what I wanted to achieve it's amazing though and that's the right word grit yeah you've definitely got to, got to have a bit of grit a bit of determination a bit of mongrel as they call it you've got to have some fight in that stomach of yours to um, really want to achieve some stuff so from the I guess from the point of view of an athlete and director how much do you think the access to, I guess, accurate advice and training affects um, success and participation of young women? Have you read Stacey Sims' book? 
No, I haven't read her book. No. But it's kind of around, you know, how women are not small men and that we do have different training or we need to have different training um, and approaches to it. How much do you kind of believe in that or how much does it affect you? There is definitely, and I guess I came through triathlon in a very male-dominated era. Uh, sport was very male dominated back then and it was a fight as a female to to really get in there and I guess be seen and to be treated differently and and females are different um, the training needs to be different we are our physiology is so different in our makeup um, in terms of what we need to do and I guess in the workforce it, it's kind of similar um, in event directing I guess when you look at what I do as a World Cup and a female owner and director of a World Cup, if you look around the world, there's not many. Um, a handful, if any, um, of females in that role. And I've never, I've never personally allowed it to be a barrier for myself, but I can see that there are, you know, things need to be encouraged more and, and shown that, hey, look, this is something that we can stand up and absolutely do and we have just as much ability to be able to do it and through my officiating career I definitely did that with the technical officials um, in New Zealand we went from very few female technical officials from when I started working in the program to probably now it's a complete shift we've probably got 80 percent of females in New Zealand who are officiating in the triathlon which is amazing and it's so exciting to see them doing that and it certainly has you know shown them empowered them as to what they can do um, and I guess where we are lucky as a sport, triathlon is a young sport. It's not an old sport. It doesn't come from the real historical background of male-dominated sports. So triathlon is very, very much about equality and about seeing females being involved and showing how they can be involved. So I have been lucky to be involved in that type of sport where that is a forefront of what the uh, the international federation is all about and also the national federation you know it's very driven around what females can do and, and what positions they can hold and very much about equality at the olympic games it's about 50 50 so it's 50 percent male 50 percent female so it definitely is you know as a sport um you know leaps and bounds above other sports in terms of what they're trying to achieve it's a really interesting point about it being a relatively young sport and how that probably affects it because as, as it's quite, I guess, a lot of training, run, biking and swimming, does that impact how you um, create the rest of your life, especially around what you eat and when you train? And um, I guess, does that kind of determine factors of your life more than other sports? I guess triathlon is having three sports. And when you look at, when you break each sport down, each sport... The athlete in each sport is actually very high level in the sport itself. Yeah. So we look at, like, I came from a running background, and so running was definitely my strength. So <laughs> like, as a runner, I could, yeah, so I, I'm, I hear you with going trail running. So as a runner, I could, I could mix with the national runners on the national level, yet I was a triathlete, so I was swimming and biking as well. So it definitely gave you that diversity, and it gave you, um, I think it gave me a, a bit of a change of scenery I guess so you weren't just about running you weren't just about swimming you had the mix of the three so it did give you some diversity but it was also a challenge because to try and be the top in your field in all three um, is not easy so it definitely gave you a mix there 
Um, in terms of nutrition and things like that, as an athlete, yeah, it's absolutely vital that you get your nutrition right. Again, I was lucky. My mum was, was very much um, ahead of her time in terms of how we were brought up, like I said, around positive thinking and, and the people that we listened to. And then, of, of course, the dietary stuff as well. So my mum brought us up organic. Um, so we ate a lot of organic food, a lot of healthy foods. I remember turning up to races. I certainly um, was not an athlete that drank coffee or drank Coke. Um, I've never drunk coffee in my life. But um, I would be the one turning up wow. and, and all these weird drinks that everyone would look at me going, oh, my God, why are you eating? Like, this looks awful. But... Um, now it doesn't seem so weird, you know, like having green barley drinks and stuff like that is, is part of the norm in terms of our society now, but definitely back there and it wasn't. But those things have definitely continued on in my life and I have been lucky um, having installed that sort of nutritional stuff in my life that those things have flowed on to now in terms of my health and things like that. So, yeah. Do you think that really helped in your kind of recovery process from your health challenges? going from an athlete to a director, your kind of childhood being brought up with a lot of grit and a solid foundation? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, the, the shift from me going from an athlete to an event director was, was a tough one. Um, it wasn't when I wanted to do it. It definitely yeah. wasn't the stage of my life when I decided I wanted to retire as an athlete. But those, it was definitely the determination and the grit that got me through, um, along with my family support. Uh, I certainly would not be in the position I am now if my family hadn't been around me. As at the end of the day, they were the ones that supported me. The sport did not support me um, because, of course, I wasn't competing anymore. So I'm not at the high level anymore. So you don't get the funding. You don't get the support. You're literally cut from the program. Um, so when that did happen, I was lucky enough to have my family around who taught me to that they loved me for whom I was. They didn't love me because I did sport. They didn't love me because I was a triathlete. They loved me for being Chanel. So that, that taught me some very valuable lessons at that time. Um, and then obviously going on to be an event director. Do you think that's changing, that kind of idea that support um, or that sport doesn't support um, athletes the minute they stop being high high performing it is changing slowly but I think there's still a big gap there and I guess it's really hard because when you look at funding for sport and especially in New Zealand because it is government funded mainly whereas you look in places like US it's all sponsorship commercially funded but again probably a very similar situation so in terms of um, that support if you're not winning on the world stage, then the money's not coming in because literally it is about you winning on the world stage. So it's very hard for Sport New Zealand to convince the wider community why their taxpayer money um, is going into an athlete that's, that's sitting at home and, and finished competing. So that's a hard story to tell, but it's certainly something that is, is vital and, and is definitely missing in the progression of, a, progression of an athlete from being an athlete into the workforce. It's a huge shift. I did quite a big piece of work. So I um, have a diploma in health and safety. And one of my assessments I did around post-Olympic blues. And it was um, interesting learning what that actually meant and, and how people were sort of working through it and how many people do have it. It's a big shift to go from an Olympic-level athlete to winning on the world stage. You're in the newspapers. You're in the media you're the best at what you do to going into the workforce and knowing absolutely nothing. 
um, you know, these athletes are going in and saying, well, I'm world champion, I've got an Olympic gold medal, but what does that mean in the workplace? It doesn't actually mean anything. So that's a big shift for people to have. And it's definitely something psychologically that um, is affecting a lot of athletes um, when they move from being an athlete into the workforce. Was that something you were kind of told about when you were an athlete? Like, did you have any prior knowledge that that could happen? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, was, um, I was lucky in that I did place a lot of importance on my education. And obviously through my career, like I said, I started uh, working, as a, working as an event director when I was 20. So I was still racing at that time. I started officiating to give something back to the sport. Without really realising, it wasn't like I sat there going, I need something after sport. It was just how I progressed. But now I know that uh, through the Prime Minister scholarships and the, the funding that is given from the government, there is a lot more education around what are you going to do post being an athlete, which is great. It's really fantastic to see that coming through. And I think that needs to be given some more importance as to what these people are doing and what these athletes are thinking uh, whilst they are racing, because things can change in an instant. You could break a leg, you could do, you know, you could get some sort of illness, you could get coronavirus and it's going to affect your lungs for your life and you can't fight and you can't race to the same level that you were before. These things happen um, in a split second, and then what are you going to do? So it, it's planning for that future, but at the same time being able to focus on what you really want to achieve at that time. So I guess this is probably a hard one to pick just one moment or multiple, but what are you most proud of? Probably most proud of the fact that I did come out from – pouring my heart and soul into becoming an elite level athlete and going to the Olympic Games and that dream of winning an Olympic medal to not being able to achieve that, they're being stripped away, not because of something I did, but because of an illness. And then being able to pick myself up again and say, right, okay, this is still my dream. This is still what I want to achieve, but how can I do it now? How can I pivot, as the word is these days, everyone's pivoting during COVID, um, how can I pivot from being an athlete to getting to the Olympic Games on another level? And that was absolutely when I decided, well, as a technical official, if I can train as an official and then I can get selected, if I can be one of the best officials in the world, I can get selected and go to the Olympic Games. Okay, it's not exactly the same way that I wanted to, but I still got there. So it was just that drive and determination to go, okay, I haven't got it this way, but how else can I do it? How else can I satisfy that real burning desire within me um, to be able to go to these Olympic Games? I love that answer. Thank you. Um, what are you most looking forward to at the moment? Getting out of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. My industry has absolutely been hammered at the moment. Um, we were the first to get hit as we went into COVID. So for me, owning the New Plymouth ITU Triathlon World Cup, which was to be hosted in March, two weeks before oh. my <laughs> We first had um, the first notions of coronavirus and what that meant. So I had to cancel my 2020 event this year. And then obviously now I'm looking at March next year, which we thought we'd all be fine. 2021 is going to be great. But of course, I have international athletes at my event. So trying to get people into quarantine. If you're quarantining two weeks before an event, it's not ideal for training. So just looking at what that looks like. And I'm just really excited to 
move, whatever the new norm might be. This just might be the new norm, but whatever that looks like, and once we get used to that, the events industry coming back, because um, obviously all my work is involved in events, um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Chanel, when you're talking then about, um, you know, learning to pivot and this, this resilience that you've learned throughout different points of your career, and then, you know, Eleanor asked you, what are you most looking forward to at the moment? And it's like, let's get out of COVID. Like, this is what's on everyone's lips at the moment. I guess what I'm asking is, what have you learned from um, from the COVID experience, but within your own, within your world of sport? I guess as event directors, you have to be so, you've got to be thinking on your feet. You've got to be able to go, what am I going to do in this situation? I've got a split second decision to make it. I've got something going down. I've got an incident happening. Um, how am I going to manage it? So it really brought that to the forefront. It really brought in the creativeness. And event directors really are about, you know, creating what they can in the environment that they've got. And it really has shown how determined and strong-willed most of us are because, oh, my goodness, through through level two, I'm working. So at the moment, my pivot is I've become the COVID queen. <laughs> so I'm helping people figure out how they can operate in the different levels that we have in New Zealand. So at alert level two, you can't have any more than 100 people in one defined space, as they're calling it. So we've got these events with, you know, 1,000 people. Obviously, that's above the limit, but how can we be creative and how can we make these events work? Because this is our industry. This is our passion. This is what we love. And so working with the events around how we can do that and just the determination coming out like, man, we're going to survive this. And everyone banding together as a group. And previously, I guess... We all held on to our databases so close to our chest because your database is about is who's going to come to your event, who's going to come back, so you don't want to share that. Whereas as a group, we've now become more of a family and we're about sharing ideas, sharing experiences and going, what would you do in this situation? Rather than thinking, well, I can figure this out myself, we've all decided to share. And I think that has been massive for our industry and I guess probably as a whole, as a community, we've all seen that. It's not about fighting for yourself. I think... We've become very selfish um, as a community and we've lost that volunteering, that, that sort of, you know, community spirit, whereas we're getting back to that again. It's getting back to our grassroots and going, we're here as a team, let's work together and how can we make this better? So event directors around New Zealand, we're, we're all talking now. We've got an event director's um, social media page where we talk to each other and, say, and we share ideas. So it's like, this is my COVID plan here. You know, absolutely use it. If this is going to help you, um, we're all here to support each other so as we can all come out the other end. But it's brilliant to see you bringing so much positivity and it's very heartwarming to hear that your learning from COVID is actually that barriers have been broken down, that people are banding together, that you're getting more support across your industry rather than perhaps people kind of walling themselves up and, and protecting what they do have. So I think that's really brilliant to hear. One last very quick question if there were other women or girls out there who are listening to this, um, would you recommend getting into triathlon? And if so, what is your kind of um, your top recommendations about how to get involved in the sport? If people are listening and thinking, I want to give this a go. Absolutely. It's a great sport. It's a, uh, it's a life sentence. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an addiction. Once you're in, you're in, and that's it for life. But there's so many different facets you can evolve in. Um, you, you can obviously be the athlete. That, that's the obvious one. And with all sport, it's, you know, everyone sees the athletes. 
but there's so many other things you can be involved with. There's social media. I know I talk to my nieces about it. I'm like, you love social media. Do you know you can get a job in social media? You know you can do a job in sport in social media. I mean, how cool is that? Um, you know, there's journalism. There's, um, you know, working in TV. There's working in the event directors. There's volunteering. There's technical officials. And the sport is absolutely fostering the females in the sport, um, which is really, really exciting and, and so neat to be involved with. And definitely when you're within the sport, there is no barriers. There is no inequality in terms of male versus females. It's, it's absolutely not that way at all. And like I said, our sport is, if in some ways, we're becoming more female dominated. And But even that's not a barrier for the men to get involved. I just think it's, it's a really neat sport in terms of working together and working as a team and saying, how can we be the best sport that we can? Let's not look at, you know, any barriers, any inequalities. It's just let's do the best for the sport that we can, um, which is it's such a great sport to be involved with. Well, thank you so much, Chanel, for setting aside some time to talk with me today. It's been so awesome kind of virtually meeting you. <laughs> um, this was an awesome conversation. And I love that we kind of touched on the mental barriers and positive thinking and the massive impact family support can have. Um, if any listeners want to get involved as volunteers in the sport or participants, where can they find you or more information? Um, I don't actually have a website. However, uh, that absolutely, I'm, I'm really open to people contacting me. I'm, I'm really, really big on that. I'm like, just give me a call, send me an email. So I'm sure you guys can pop my email up on the podcast. So it's chanel at svevents.nz. Um, feel free to share my phone number if people contact you guys. Um, I'm really about, you know, encouraging as many people, you know, women in sport, young people in sport. I just think sport is such an amazing place to foster so many um, morals and values in your life. Um, it's really important. And I'm absolutely more than happy to help where I can. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chanel. Have an awesome week. We hope you loved this episode of The Conversation Collective. Don't forget to give us a rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. The Conversation Collective. We want to say a big thank you and high fives to the Centre for Sport, Peace and Society at the University of Tennessee, whose Empower Women Through Sports follow-on grant has brought this podcast series to life. Our thanks also go to the New Zealand Commission for UNESCO for supporting this project, Empowering These Conversations. Nga mihi nui. See you next time.